you know, Twombly could go in the early 50s, there weren't really antiquarians so much as flea markets. And he bought until apparently Rauschenberg complained when they were together, they ran out of money very quickly. He would just spend his time going to certain flea markets and buying amazing things from the past. And it was just this incredibly rich place to be. Leo Castelli showed him for many years without much success. And it was really, in, really until he started to make the Bolsena paintings, which it was in 1969, that certain international collectors started to buy the work. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maneker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information, as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. One of the clear trends visible in last year's auction data is a renewed interest in abstract painting. Bidders are pursuing a range of overlooked artists from the 1940s and 50s. There's a particularly strong interest in women who participated in the first generation of abstract expressionists in New York. Into that trend, David's Werner Gallery has opened a new show, Roma, New York, 1953-64. The exhibition highlights the connection between some of the giants of mid-century art, like Willem de Kooning, Robert Rauschenberg, Franz Klein, and Cy Twombly, and a group of Italian artists in Rome, including a few significant women painters. The show is filled with discoveries. That may be why one obsessive gallery goer on Instagram called it the most magnificent gallery show in New York right now. I sat down with the show's curator, David Lieber, who's also a partner at David's Werner Gallery, to talk more. David Lieber, thank you for being part of the podcast. Pleasure to be with you. So you put together this show called Roma that talks about the transatlantic connection between many of the high modern artists, both in New York and in Rome. During a period when Rome was sort of the center of Italian art and the emergence of a you know, vibrant modernism. It's based on an earlier show or book by Germano. Germano Cella. I'd love for you to just give us the thesis of the show and also the connection to Chelan. I read this book in, I think, 92 or 93 when it came out and was working closely with Genenzo Speroni in those years and thought this would be an amazing exhibition. There was a small exhibition at the time the book came out. Uh, in, in, uh, it was published by the Isabella Del Frate Foundation, which had a very small space in the Fuller Building. I don't remember the exhibition, but the book has stayed with me, and that became sort of the roadmap for this exhibition, which I've been, since I joined David Sverner, it's very much been top of mind. And the show really is about kind of the mutual discovery of Italian artists uh, seeing American art coming to Rome, American artists coming to Rome, and Roman artists, Italian artists, but artists based in Rome, coming to New York in the 50s, um, and, and how they both influenced each other. Certainly Rome was the first city in Europe to recognize the importance of post-war American art. No question, not Paris, Paris was later, 
There was no Berlin at that point as an art world, and certainly no place like London. It was really Rome. And um, what was fascinating was just, as you dig into it, all these interesting transatlantic relationships between galleries, between artists, artists who were ambassadors, who went between both. Of course, they're going by boat in these, in these years. Um, so it was very deliberate, and stays were probably longer than three or four days. Sometimes they were years. But there were amazing friendships that evolved between these artists, um, and they were often showing in the same galleries, the same galleries in Rome and the same galleries in, in New York. And we're talking about three or four galleries in New York, um, the stable, mostly run by women, I, I should say, the Stable Gallery, which was run by Eleanor Ward, beginning in the early 50s. It was called Stable because it was in a stable on 7th Avenue, just north of 57th Street. This was the gallery that showed de Kooning, but also Bury, also Marcarelli, also Twombly. And the, the dates of the show, let me just back up a bit. The parameters were, the book was 1947, I think, to 64. I wanted the show to begin in 1953, which was really when, in 1952, to be very, specific here. Cy Twombly and Rauschenberg in the summer of 52 went to Rome. They were a couple. And in early 53, through their dealer there, Galleria del Obelisco, they met Alberto Buri. And it was a kind of important encounter because Buri was making works after the war uh, with burlap sacks. They were black. In terms of materiality, they were something radically new. And Rauschenberg was beginning to make his gold paintings and then, of course, his black paintings. And Bury felt that it was an interesting encounter and that maybe Rauschenberg was influenced by, by Bury. Um, those American artists don't quite remember the encounter in the same way as Bury, but it doesn't matter. They, they were, in my mind, they were doing something different, but at that moment, they overlapped. And if you look at their paintings, they have a very different energy, Rauschenberg and Bury, but the materials were surprisingly similar. So Rauschenberg is the beginning of the story, and then Rauschenberg's actually the, the, marks the closing dates as well, 1964. 64 was when the Americans, when Rauschenberg is in the Venice Biennale, there was a lot of pop-based work shown at that time, but he won the prize the American Pavilion. And that was considered really, that marked the ascendancy of American pop in Europe, not just Italy, um, but also in France. And so those were the dates of the show, 53 to 64. And I tried to kind of, you know, it's the exhibition's on two floors. It includes over 50 works, 23 artists. It's a lot of information. Um, I kind of see this as the first show. I'm opening up a can of worms. Hopefully some museums will follow up and focus on some of these artists in particular, but it's kind of like a, a syllabus to a larger show. And the roadmap to the syllabus was Germano's book. So why Rome? You mentioned Paris uh, earlier, and you know there's the famous uh, how New York stole the idea of modern art in that sort of post-war uh, period. And there's also, you know, because of the Marshall Plan, this explosion of a sort of an Italian economic uh, miracle, both through that kind of funding and then uh, the Korean War. So the 52 is actually a, you know, a very interesting uh, point. The Korean War ends. There's been all of this growth and change in Italian society. Um, 
have all these artists sort of migrated to Rome in this period? A, a lot of things were happening in the 50s, including Cinecittà, including cinema, advertising. It was the, the, great, the years of the great boom. There's a wonderful photograph that we used for our sort of exhibition page for the show. There was an American in Rome called Milton Gendel, who was also he was a journalist, an editor, a connector, and a photographer. And there's this fabulous photo of the Piazza del Popolo, which is, happens to be where all of the artists congregated and all of the filmmakers congregated around 1960. The, the Cafe Rosati and the, the Cafe um, Canova for the filmmakers. And the photo shows two Cinquecento Fiats parked there and then this totally open piazza. It's a fantastic photograph. Of course, you know in the distance in the churches there are four or five Caravaggios that have been there for 400 years. And so Rome was the place and you can't underestimate the importance of all of these cultural figures coming together, writers, poets, filmmakers. Um, it, was, it was a natural hub. In, in a way, Milan becomes a bit that a bit later in, in the 60s. Um, Milan and Torino, if you talk about sort of the next generation with Arte Povera, but Rome was without question a draw. And I think, you know, it's so interesting to compare, you know, we, we talk about this kind of new, new realism that existed like in Mario Schifano's work or the so-called Piazza del Popolo group. And these are the artists on the second floor in the show. Novelli, Giosetta Fioroni, the, the only woman of the group, um, Perilli, and of course Mario Schifano. And we call this neo-pop or they were aware of American pop, but it's so different how Rome, pop art in Rome was archeology. span It was Michelangelo. It was also advertising. It was Monica Vitti. And so they looked to their history as a form of a kind of ready-made and the sort of stratification of, of layers, stratification of memories that existed in Rome. Whereas the American artists, I mean, New York, in the exhibition, the biggest, you know, the contrast between the big Franz Klein painting when you walk in, uh, the, the emphatic New York school gesture, it's almost like having the Brooklyn Bridge. This Franz Klein, this heavy, hard-edged, black-on-white New York gesture, it's like having the, the Brooklyn Bridge in the gallery. And then in contrast, on a much smaller scale, you have the work of Carla Accardi, also black and white from the same moment, a little earlier, but painted in casein, kind of a, a tempera, a very old material. It's kind of, that dates way back, very matte surface. It's, it's uh, white over black. So it's sort of the opposite of a Klein painting. And it had a, a very different energy to it than the Klein, but it's so interesting to see them together. So Klein is a great friend of de Kooning's in this period. Uh, did he go to uh, Rome too, or is uh, this? Yes, all, all of the Americans were in Rome, if not for a short stay. Um, they spent extended time there like de Kooning in 1959, beginning with Philip Guston, I think in 49, I believe. But all of these artists, and, and there was an interest and in, their work was known. They were being shown particularly at La Tartaruga Gallery, which was by far the kind of seminal gallery from the mid, mid to late 50s through the 60s. And that was the gallery that showed Twombly, you name it, de Kooning, the Piazza del Popolo group, Buri, really, kind of all of the artists in the, in the show at, at a certain moment 
either showed at La Salita or La Tartaruga. And, and there's this community, the one, you know, uh, you mentioned the, everyone in, uh, from both the film business, uh, you know, and, and the artists in these cafes, this community you know, is uh, sort of long lasting through this period. The artists all know each other, they're all congregating. I mean, this is what, what had happened in New York in the, the 40s is they all spent a lot of time together, you know, famously at the automats, you know, arguing right. in the 30s and 40s, arguing about modern art. Is it the same? A little bit, and like, like those examples you give, whether, whether it's even the Odeon, in the 80s. Um, it's a very short moment. The minute it becomes uh, recognized, it almost has already moved on to something else. And I think if you use the example of Marcarelli, Marcarelli is such an interesting case because like Scarpita, who's in the show, um, they're Italian-Americans, they're born in America, but they speak Italian. They talked about how when they went to Italy initially, they spoke fluent Italian, but within 30 seconds, whomever they were speaking to said, where are you from? Because you know, they just didn't understand necessarily at the beginning the cultural references. But Marcarelli went back and forth and was the real ambassador. Um, but he stopped going to Rome in 1959. He would visit occasionally, but he was then for a period of time living, I think, in Paris. He was living outside of, he was in New York City, then he was in New Jersey. And then he spent the last few years of his life in Parma. And I think he felt that Rome, that moment had passed and that um, maybe the market was defining itself in a way. And I think it's important for me to say that, you know, there's a difference between a cultural moment and a market moment. Like these, these artists were participating in something, but it's not like there were dozens of collectors and waiting lists. There wasn't, that wasn't the case at all. I think the Americans were attracted to how well the Italians, with very little money, could live very grandly in Italy. If anything, the story of the 50s was the emergence of a group of collectors uh, for this kind of art, that there hadn't been... Uh, a few, yeah, a few. I mean, Cy Twombly, great example. He, he's the canonical figure, and he's, he's the ultimate sort of, the first real expatriate. You know, there was Twombly, there was Cunellis, coming from Greece, um, you know, you could, you could use the example of Joan Mitchell, who, who left permanently for, for France, for Paris, and then the countryside. I don't think of her so much of a, as an expatriate in Twombly either, because they were living very independently, very grandly, somewhat aloofly, um, but living very well with incredible style. They could do that. You know, Twombly could go in the early 50s. There weren't really antiquarian so much as flea markets. And he bought until apparently Rauschenberg complained when they were together, they ran out of money very quickly. He would just spend his time going to certain flea markets and buying amazing things from the past. And it was just this incredibly rich place to be. He maintained a very strong network of, of galleries, mostly outside of Italy, not within Italy. Um, in Germany, in America, in France, a little bit. Um, but his market, you know, we, we think, well, look at the price of a Twombly today, but like, it really wasn't. Leo Castelli showed him for many years without much success. And it was really, in, really until he started to make the Bolsena paintings, which was in 1969, that certain international collectors started to buy the work. But even into the 80s, Twombly was a kind of, like Bruce Nauman for, for that matter, a kind of cultivated artist that only the most kind of, if I can use the word sophisticated, 
informed collectors were really buying the work in depth. It was not commercial work, it was not easy. Of course that changed in the last few decades. And now he's such a blue chip artist in that way. But Mark Arelli was making, getting by. He was selling work. Uh, de Kooning sells work in New York in the 50s. You know, he's, he's a star, uh, uh, Pollock. But there's the development of a market, and, and it sounds like a lot of these Italian artists are coming to New York because there's at least the, the hope of demand, right? The, the, the gallerists think, hey, I've sold some similar works. It'd be nice to try with, with your work uh, uh, as right. well. It's interesting how art, art history is constantly evolving and, and, and art, the art business is constantly evolving. The most successful Italian artist in New York in the 50s was not Alberto Burri, who's had multiple retrospectives, including more recently at the Guggenheim. The most respected and most celebrated and successful in terms of sales was Afro. Afro had an exhibition almost every year with the Catherine Viviano Gallery in the 50s. If you had a show every year, that meant that the last show did pretty well, if not very well. The dealer was eager to do another show. And she sold the work to great clients, and so you see in many American museums afros that were bought at the time. Um, you know, de Kooning, if we talk about his market even today, you can buy a de Kooning drawing for $10,000. Not a major drawing, or you could buy a kind of important painting for 50 to 100 to 200 million dollars if it's a canonical painting from the 50s. So there's a huge range. And the same is true with the Italian artists. The Italian artists, again, they had moments of success like Afro, but many of them had to, to return to teaching, Dorazio, Afro, Scarpita. They needed to survive. They needed to make a living. They're very prolific. They sold work through a network of regional galleries in Italy, and they survived, and they managed to live very well. And so it, it takes time to kind of develop a market that is so big. And I think, you know, with, with Italian dealers, if I can say this, sometimes they price work in relation to sort of size per square inch. And if they heard about X painting selling for $2 million, well, my painting's half the size, it's worth a million dollars. It doesn't work that way. You know, what I wanted to do with this exhibition was, was, was borrow and find the absolute best examples that have the most extraordinary provenance that passed through the canonical galleries. They weren't works sold directly from the studio, but they passed through the three or four galleries that I mentioned, either in New York or in, in Rome. Galleria del Obelisco was a gallery that connected Buri and Rauschenberg from an earlier generation, and then again, La Tartaruga, and then La Salita. And so the works in our show, I can say this, whether they're for sale or not, they represent the very best and from the best period, in my view, when, they, when the works resonated and, and kind of had the, the, the largest influence on other artists. So, since you raised it, how did you go about finding these works? I mean, I assume you know we're, uh, of many of the, them, but you just mentioned you, you now have this um, criteria. You didn't just want a great work that was sold out of the studio. You wanted ones with good provenance. It's a good question. It's complicated, the answer. Um, the, the show was in my head for many years. When I joined the gallery, it was one of the first projects I proposed, and David Zwerner was very excited, but it was a question of finding the right moment to do this, because it's a complicated show. And then we were about to do it just before COVID, et cetera, et cetera. I thought it was canceled. David called me, I remember the day on a Sunday last May, and said, how about that Rome, New York show? Let's do it. And I said, uh, 
okay, let's, let's do it, absolutely. And so I went back to the foundations that I had been in touch with, who were all supportive from the beginning. Um, there were key, a few key museum loans. I can say the loan of the Buri painting from the Albright Knox was the first Buri to enter an American museum. And they agreed from the outset and were supportive. And they, when I approached them not so long ago, they said, of course. Um, I mentioned the Rauschenberg Foundation. We had an amazing loan from the New York State collection of a Franz Klein painting that was bought in the early 60s under Nelson Rockefeller. They were very eager for that painting to be in this show. Um, there, were, there were paintings that we located through our research team, which is exceptional. And I knew that there was this Marcarelli painting at, at a small but wonderful uh, university gallery in St. Louis called the Kemper, part of Washington University. They bought terrific Italian paintings in the 50s. I knew they had this painting called The Arrival. It hadn't been lent. The last time it was lent was 1965 to a show at the Whitney. I asked for that painting. Uh, that took a little bit of greasing and um, coercing, and then ultimately the director supported the, the loan. Uh, it was tricky getting loans still in the midst of COVID because registrars, there were fewer registrars on, on hand. And the, I was, I was mostly lucky. Nearly everything that I asked for, we were able to get. And so um, through a combination of, I, you know, I, I, I like to, to dig. I have a library at home. We have a great library here. As I said, our research department. And you just sort of connect the dots and you, you talk to people, they mention someone else. And it happens very quickly, very organically. That's the fun part of organizing shows. Well, the exciting thing about the show, you mentioned Marcarelli, you mentioned a Afro, um, is that there's, at least from what we can see in, in the sales figures, there seems to be a turn back towards abstraction. It makes sense. There's been six or eight years of this sort of, you know, uh, of, uh, interest in, in figurative painting. There's, the abstract painting hasn't gone away, but there seems to be a sort of growing interest in many of the sales we see um, first-generation abstract expressionists who are lesser known uh, starting to bubble up uh, both in frequency and in, in prices. And this show looks like that adds to, to that, that you know, there are all these names who are very good painters who are often not as uh, people, collectors aren't as familiar with them. And I think one of the, the strengths of the show is there are these fantastic examples of some of the uh, uh, Italians and Americans you, you mentioned, but also a, a number of the other uh, Italians in, in the show. It, what, talk to me about that casting. I, I know what you're getting at. But I would say, I would ask you a question, is de Kooning a figurative or abstract artist? You know, is Marcarelli, Marcarelli passed through, as did Philip Guston, a kind of figuration looking at de Chirico, looking at Mirandi. Um, is Mirandi a figurative artist? He wasn't particularly interested in bottles. I mean, that was a surrogate for something else. So I know what you're getting at. I, I would answer it differently. I would say that, um, of course, the work is more abstract. And then, of course, when you go to the second floor, you start to see traces of imagery through these so-called neo-pop or new Dada painters, mostly the Scuola, the uh, Piazza del Popolo group. But I would just say this, that these artists are not, you know, they've had retrospectives, multiple monographic exhibitions and books have been published in Italy. They're, they're all super well known um, in Italy. And it reminds me a little bit when, you know, I was involved with some great exhibitions in the late 90s uh, of Lucio Fontana and Manzoni. 
and even Carla Cardi a few years later. And, and it took, you know, they weren't shows that were enormously successful from a market point of view. There weren't so many people who were aware of how, how seminal an artist like Fontana and Manzoni were, or Buri for that matter. Um, works sold to the very best collectors. You know, I'm talking about people like Howard Roshofsky, or, you know, real international collectors who were following international, the international avant-garde in the 50s, which was a kind of renaissance period, particularly in Italy. Um, and it took a while, and I feel like what I'm experiencing, what I'm sensing or feeling now with when people encounter the works and some, and some of the works in this exhibition, particularly Afro or Dorazio, I feel like it's the beginning of something, and I, again, I wanted them to, to see, even if it were two or three examples, the very best. And so it's a little bit of an echo. I remember in the late 90s, you started to have Italian sales at the auction houses. And those in the last few years, especially during COVID, they kind of disappeared. And it's not because people are less interested in Italian art. I think they're still discovering all the facets. It's, there's, there's a sort of lack of quote-unquote masterpieces on the market. That's certainly true with, with um, Arte Povera and Fontana as well, and some of the artists you know, I've mentioned just now. But there wasn't enough to kind of put together a wholesale of, of great Italian material. Now that work is peppered into these crossover sales, and it, it does just fine in that way. And I look, I think what's interesting, we just ran through last year's numbers, there seems to be um, you know, bidding pressure on the upside for Fontana, which is somewhat surprising given his, his you know, ubiquitous na nature, his huge popularity, especially there was a period 10 years ago where he was you know, sort of displacing war Warhol as, as this frequently traded, you know, very recognizable international um, uh, artist, and to see that sort of start to come back is maybe it's new collectors, maybe it's just a, a different. And and I think again, what's what's great about your show is to be introduced to Luigi. I'm going to butcher his last Luigi Boile. Boile. You know, he was an artist who, just to use him as an example, he was very close with Fontana. He was very close with the, the, the sort of preeminent writers and critics, Michel Tapier, and he was in Gutai exhibitions he was showing between Rome and, and Paris. And Leo Castelli was about to show his work. Uh, he had just shown Capogrossi successfully in New York when he first opened his gallery. But then Leo kind of shifted at, at that moment to pop and the Americans, and so that never happened. So it was, it was fun to, to sort of see him and to see the tremendous response to his work uh, in, a, in a new audience. But let me give you a better example of what I was trying to, to get at, which is Alighiero Boetti. Okay, Boetti, enormously prolific artist. His work was by nature um, collaborative. It was made 99.9% .9 of it after he moved from Torino to Rome in the early 70s. It was made by other people, his collaborators in Afghanistan and Pakistan later, and then a few people in Rome who were part of his process. He was hugely prolific. He was selling his embroideries in the early 80s on television. The original QVC, QVC artist, Telemark, and he was selling his embroideries, little ones, for, I don't remember, 400,000 lira, which sounds like a big number, but it was actually, at that, the conversion rate in those days, it was $200. Um, these embroideries now, you can't find one for less than $50,000. The market has finally caught up to a very prolific artist like Boetti, who was, 
for me, kind of the, the, the major conceptual artist in Italy. I've, I've discussed this with some collectors, some sense that they, there's now sort of the um, uh, enough scholarship, there's a, 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 a documentation of all of those works, and we're seeing both, there's been a recent run of where the mappas have gone up in price significantly, but also the much smaller embroidery works, the five by fives uh, and all, are selling, at, as you just said, at you know, levels $50,000 where they hadn't. And, and that, that activity seems to have been the, what's pushed up the MAPA, is that you know, there's, yes. there's frequency of that and other works. I agree. There's, you know, I like artists who, I, I respond to artists, well, like Boetti, who, who made fantastic artist books that are now actually quite valuable. But he made work for different sides of the market um, and not just the masterpiece, which we now say is a map. But for him, there, you know, these were all equal. It's just those have become the canonical works and now there's catalog resumes out so we know exactly how many, many, but we at least know how many. Uh, he made of this and that. And he, he made work for different sides of the market. Um, and I would say Schifano is an artist also like that, who uh, takes some time to sift through everything. But, but Mario Schifano, and there will be you know, a, an important monographic show in New York in a museum soon, to be announced soon. But Mario Schifano is another hugely important artist who you know, was sort of like the, the Warhol figure in, in Rome in the 60s. He made experimental films. Um, he, was, he was kind of the, the major cultural figure. He was, spent a lot of time in New York in the early 60s. You can, when you go through the exhibition, you understand he had kind of a, a, quite a deep relationship with Rauschenberg and with Johns and with their work, and you see interesting connections. Johns is, Jasper Johns was not in the exhibition and, and could have been. I would say of all the American artists, Johns had a huge influence in Italy, and not just in Rome, but in Torino later with, with Speroni was the first to show all of the pop artists and minimal and conceptual and arte prover artists, Genenzo, in, in, in Rome, in Torino and Milan in the early 60s. And, you know, when I mentioned the influence of the receptiveness of Rome to American art, it wasn't just to the New York School, which is really what this exhibition includes, New York School or whatever you want to call it, action painters, or I think New York School sounds better, but also sort of neo-dada and pop. Rome was very receptive. Duchamp, for example, was, was hugely embraced in the late 50s and early 60s in Rome, and then Arturo Schwartz in Milan. So there was, there was a real openness to kind of new forms of realism um, beginning in the 60s. And there were those two different international pop shows about five or six years ago uh, that were circulating in the museums yes. that sort of showed what a global movement exactly. pop art was. You know, one show I think was more Eurocentric and then others showed the iterations of pop all over the world, which was fascinating, even if those happened not contemporaneously, but in the decades later. Um, another person to mention, of course, who was part of the story was, was Sidney Janis. Sidney Janis, of course, shifted, and, you know, Gustin de Kooning, they were all furious when he organized that show called The New Realists in 1962. They had been showing Rothko as well in his gallery, and he, he shifted his focus to, it was the first show in a commercial gallery to include American pop, what was called nouveau realism in France, 
and then a kind of, I don't know, new Dada or neo-pop in, in Italy. And so artists like Fioroni, like Tano Festa, like Schifano, they were all in that exhibition. And he was making regular trips to, to Rome in the late 50s, as was, of course, more famously, Ileana and Leo Castelli. They, in the late 50s, their first stop was to see Plinio de Martis at La, Tur La Tartaruga Gallery. They were looking, particularly Ileana, to form a partnership with that gallery. And that didn't happen for various reasons, but it did lead Ileana to, to the work of Mario Schifano, who was the first artist under contract with her when she then opened her gallery in Paris. And that's sort of the beginning of another story. I think that was in 1959. And of course, Paris becomes an important capital into the 60s. But it was really Rome first. We could go on, because there's clearly lots to go on, but uh, I want to ask you one last question, which is, we've been talking about the market. We haven't really talked about the collectors and their reaction. You, the show's been open a week or two now. It's a lot of balls in the air, uh, some great sales. Um, I'm, so, I'm so grateful for the response from artists who come up to me. Um, last Saturday, I think we had 1,000 visitors, and we had major American museums, New York City museum directors and curators in for the second and third times. So the response has been phenomenal. I think uh, from a commercial point of view, I think we're going to be very happy. It takes time. Is it the discovery of new artists? Is it rediscovery of work that they, you know, sort of names they were familiar with? We were discussing I Afro and both. I think, I think people who've been going to art fairs, um, particularly in Europe, in Basel, especially. These artists will not be, you know, maybe one or two might not be familiar, but at least they, they have a recognition factor. But um, there's a lot of market interest in Marcarelli's work. Carla Accardi was in Cecilia Alemani's. She had a whole room in the, in the Venice Biennale in her curated show. She looked fantastic. She was the key female artist in the 50s who also then, what she did later, was hugely important on the Arte Povera generation in terms of sculpture and new materials, these paintings and objects she made with plastic, a, a kind of a colored plastic called sycophoil that she made in the mid-60s into the mid-70s. Um, Dorazio is another artist you're going to be hearing more of. Um, he's just such an incredible colorist. And these were artists, particularly Dorazio and Schifano, who were also, when they were emerging, they were themselves reintroducing interesting hi histories in 20th century Italian art, for example, futurism. So Bala, Giacomo Bala is sort of the, the, the major figure in that period uh, in the teens, 20s, and 30s. He dies a few decades later, but Bala is sort of rediscovered in the 50s through a number of avenues, but especially through the artists. And Dorazio, in his depictions of, I mean, he was such a sensational colorist. He painted in oil at a time when you would think these more grid-based works would be done faster with a material like acrylic. Um, they were basically like studies of light and energy, which is why he was also embraced by the Zero Group. And Schifano made wonderful paintings that reference Bala and, and motion and futurist references as well. So it's interesting how the new, especially with 
the Europeans with the Italians. The new is introduced through the old and, um, and how history is constantly being shuffled. Uh, we could go on, but I think that's a great place to, to stop. Uh, it, it's a fantastic show and I hope this will get more people to come down, but it, it sounds like you probably don't have room for them. Well, well, we do, we do, and thank you very much. I'm uh, very happy to be uh, with you today, Marian, and look forward to meeting people in the gallery. It's my pleasure. Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence Podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin, who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it.